Welcome to the Redeemer Podcast. For more information about Redeemer Church, visit makingmuchofjesus.org. We hope you enjoy the talk and invite you to visit us next Sunday at either our 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. service. We finish up the book of James this morning. James's look at what practical Christianity really looks like. Because a Christianity that isn't practiced isn't really Christianity. It's just knowledge. It's just theories. Christianity must be lived out, whether that's being a, a hearer of the word and a doer, whether that's bridling our tongue, whether that's caring for orphans and widows, whether that's not showing partiality. Whatever it is, James's concern is that we live out our Christian faith. And here at the end, he talks about how we will endure till the end, to the end end, the return of Christ. And as we do every week, if you're able, let's stand in honor of the reading of the word of Christ, and we'll begin in verse 7. The Spirit tells us, beginning in verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, till it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. And will cover a multitude of sins. Let's pray together. Holy Father, help us now. Help us to hear your word. Would your spirit, would the Holy Spirit of God move among us now and cut through the thoughts and intentions of our hearts with his sword. Help us, King Jesus. And it's in your mighty name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Do you remember the, the panic of Y2K? I thought about Y2K this week as I thought about this passage. People were going bananas at the thought of Y2K. They thought computers were going to shut down because it couldn't handle the double zero in the year 2000. Programs were going to die. Street lights would break. Power plants would shut down. There'd be no more nuclear power. We would all lose electricity. 
And I, I know, I saw this firsthand. I saw people buying giant bags of rice. And maybe you're still eating that rice that you, that you bought. And, and barrels of, barreled drums of water and astronaut food and all kinds of stuff like that. Prepping for something that didn't happen. It didn't happen. Y2K, hysteria was wasted energy and people prepped for something that never occurred. And we can laugh it off now. It's kind of funny to joke about it. But listen, you can't Y2K the suffering you'll face in this life. It will hit. It will strike. You cannot avoid suffering in this life. It hits all of us. It comes for all of us. There's nothing you can do to avoid it. If it hasn't happened to you yet, it's because you're just not old enough yet. Some of us are suffering now. And you'll grab a hold of these verses from James and you'll put them right to use. But some of us are not. And we're, we don't know what it's like to have a family member with cancer. We don't know what it's like to have lost a job or to struggle with our children. Some of us, things are kind of cruising along. But it would be unwise of you to not take these verses and store them away. To prepare yourself for the suffering that is going to come. James's concern here is to show us how we can endure till the end. And when I say end, I don't mean the end of the suffering. It's usually what we think of. I've got to endure till the end. I, I just got to get through this trial, through this suffering. That's really not even what James is addressing. When he says, I want you to endure till the end, it's not just the trial and the sickness. It is the end end, the end of the world, the eschaton. When the clouds are peeled back like a scroll and the Lord descends on a white horse with the soundtrack of a trumpet behind him. This is James's concern, and it must be ours. When the Lord brings that new earth with him, how do we endure till then? James's first counsel to us, number one, patience is needed. And this patience isn't passive. Look at verse seven. His first charge, be patient therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. So you see that? Not be patient till your trial ends. Not be patient till your suffering ends. Be patient until the coming of Christ. Wait for Jesus to come back. Look, look further than the end of your trial. Look further than the end of your sickness. Your great hope is not your trial ending. Your great hope is the return of the King, the return of Christ. And because here's what happens in suffering and trials and sickness and pain and heartache. They, it feels like their gravity gets heavier. And they, it feels like they bring us closer to the earth. We feel more chained to the fallen earth. Sinks us further into the ground. And this is why James says, look to the sky. Look beyond them. He is coming. And so how often do you really think about the return of Christ? Honestly, in, in your own heart, What's a greater comfort to you, this trial being alleviated or the return of Christ? Is the return of Jesus a precious truth to you? Does it lift your soul? Does it, does it give you a shot of gospel adrenaline to keep trusting in the Lord of all? Because the impending return of Christ is a reality check for us. So why? Why is this good counsel? Be patient until the coming of the Lord. Why would that be encouraging to us? It reminds us that Jesus really is alive. We don't just believe in some knowledge about what some Jewish man did in the Roman Empire, that he died at the hands of the Romans, that he kind of got 
railroaded by an angry mob of Jewish Pharisees and Sadducees. No. The return of Christ reminds us that Jesus really is alive and that he really did die on the cross for my sins, not just to be some example of a sacrifice and to be a hero, but he really died in my place under the wrath of God to pay for my sins and that he really did rise again from the dead and that he really is reigning and ruling at the right hand of the Father and he really is in charge of the universe and at the sound of that trumpet, he really will return and I really will rise from the dead and I really will reign and rule with him forever in the new earth. That's what the resurrection and the return of Christ reminds us of. Is that encouraging to you or is it just theology? Endure since he really is coming soon. Be patient. He really did die in your place and rise again from the dead. Maybe you need to believe that for the first time. Maybe you've never believed that Jesus died in your place. Maybe you have no idea that Christ is coming back and what that means for you on Judgment Day. He invites you today to believe in him for the forgiveness of your sins. And if you already believe that, endure. Don't throw in the towel. Don't walk away from God. Don't, don't look for comfort in what you can drink or smoke and inject and taste and touch and feel or buy, but find comfort in Christ himself. And notice how James says, well, really, notice what he doesn't say. He didn't say, be patient, you'll be raptured soon. Why doesn't James say that? That's how a lot of American Christians think. I just got to get out of here. He doesn't speak that way because that would play into our own desire for escapism and not really to endure. Beloved, the return of Christ isn't an escape hatch from this world. It is the arrival of the new world. It's the arrival of the new earth. It's a reminder that he is going to make all things new when he comes back. For behold, he is making all things new. And that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And when Jesus says, behold, I have overcome the world, we don't need an escape hatch. We need enduring truth. Because at the return of Christ, he will eradicate cancer. Jesus is cancer's cancer. When he returns, he will vaporize crystal meth. And it will no longer be this addictive demon on our planet. Every pornographic website will be wiped from this earth. Satan and his minions will be chained into eternal torment. The return of Christ brings in the new world. So wait for it. Don't let the suffering and trials and pain and heartache here cloud what is to come. Be patient. Your best life is coming. Just like the farmer has to wait. That's what he says next. Look at verse, the end of verse 7. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth? Being patient. So you have waiting, patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. He says, look, just like the farmer plants a seed, he has no control over when the rains come, how much rain comes. He just does it and he waits. So you too, wait. Just like those rains are promised, the return of Christ is promised. Or maybe since we're not heavily minded agricultural people and we don't have a lot of farmers here, maybe this one, this analogy will help us. Just like you have to wait for the next season of your favorite Netflix show. <laughs> Be patient. It's already under contract. It's going to happen. 
Just like you have to wait for football season every year. Just wait. Be patient. It's coming. I know college football started. Don't doesn't really matter to me. NBA. NBA will be here in a month. I just got to wait. It's going to happen. So too. In your life, the return of Christ, it's happening. Just wait. So beloved, this may sound weird, but I want you to really feel this and believe this. I don't think it is. Don't just have faith in a crucified and resurrected Christ. Have faith in the returning Christ too. Have faith in a complete Christ, in his incarnation, in his crucifixion, in his resurrection, in his ascension, and in his impending return. I mean, look at what James says in verse 8. You also be patient. How? What does patience really look at? This is how this verse shows us patience is not passive. Establish your hearts. So don't just sit back and twiddle your thumbs. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Because we think being patient is passive. We just, just wait, just sit around, kind of like the doctor's office. You're just waiting, reading old magazines, waiting. I don't know what we did before our phones, before we could just do stuff all the time. We just sat there, waited. This is not the same thing. Be patient. This is establish your hearts. Get a grounding. Get a footing again because under trial, under temptations, under these hardships and heartaches, you can kind of lose your footing. He says, no, recleat yourself in who God is, what God has said, what God has done. Establish your heart, soul, mind, and strength in who he is. So what does it look like in suffering? It looks like this. God, I don't know why. I'm enduring this. I'm establishing my heart in, in that you are good and you only do good and that you work things together for good for those, for those who are called according to your purpose. It's establishing your heart. Don't understand. I don't have all the information. I don't know the 10,000 things that are happening in this universe right now in this nanosecond, but I'm establishing my heart and who you are and what you have promised to me. Because, be- Beloved, what we don't need I know some of you are already thinking, well, I need, I need something more practical. I need some practical steps for how I can endure till the end. What, what, what can I do? What should I say? What should I not say? Listen, there's nothing more practical than you could do to establish your heart. The Lord's return is at hand. You notice how he says that twice? Wait for the coming of the Lord, giving this like, whoa, maybe it's soon. And he says in verse 8, it's at hand. He wrote this 2,000-ish years ago. Is James wrong? He told these people, his original audience, it's at hand. Here we are 2,000-ish years later. He hasn't come back yet. It's still true. It is still at hand. Because if you were to take a timeline of when Adam and Eve walked on the earth and when Jesus will return and then all of eternity, if you put today, on all this on construction paper, you mark today, and then you mark the return of Christ, And then you mark what all of eternity will be like with him. That little gap between today and his return, it's like a millimeter. It looks like it's at hand compared to what awaits us. This feels like just a nanosecond until the coming of Christ because our future is incredibly bright. And he reminds us, be patient. And he gives us another bit of counsel that I think we really do need. Look at verse 9. It may seem weird that this is inserted here, but we need it. Verse 9. So wait for the coming of the Lord. It's at hand. Verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brothers, that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So he motivates us again. Don't talk bad about one another. Don't grumble against one another. 
Because what happens in suffering and trial, when the heat gets turned up in our lives, we're more prone to get cranky. We're more prone to just kind of say what we feel because we're suffering. Well, I'm going through so much, so I can say whatever I want. That we've kind of earned a right to sin and to be unloving and to not be kind. James says, don't get cranky with each other. He knows that whether we're in the first century or the 21st century, that we are prone to become grumple stiltskins with each other. And just prove it. Are, are you more prone to snap at your kids or a stranger? When your kids didn't do anything, stranger didn't do anything, things are bad at work, who are you more prone to snap at? Your kids. When you're going through suffering and hardship and there's a lot of tension and stress, are you more prone to get angry with a friend or your neighbor that you barely know? Family or a telemarketer? Maybe both on that one. <laughs> James cautions us and he knows that no matter where we are or where we live, we're prone to lash out on those whom we love most because we feel like, well, they know my heart and I, that we have kind of this bizarre allowance to sin with people that we're closest to. As though that even though I'm closest to them, I still don't have to love my neighbor as myself. As though I am going through a lot of suffering, but I still don't have to love my neighbor as myself. James's counsel is, you see the motivation? Uh, the judge is standing at the door. Jesus will be, be here soon. So how about you don't do that? Unless you want to be judged by the judge. His counsel here is all through the suffering trial, how to endure to the end, keep looking to Jesus. Keep looking to Jesus. I don't know. We're already thinking, well, what do I do? What's some practical thing I could do next? James says, wait for Jesus to come back. That's practical enough. Wait for Jesus to come back. Keep having that enduring faith in Christ. Well, what else, James? He graciously gives us something else. What we don't need are coping mechanisms. What we need really are spiritual disciplines. He's going to hit two things. Know your Bible and pray. This is really the, the last two things. Know your Bible and pray. We don't need coping me mechanisms. We need biblical literacy. Look at what he says next. Look at the prophets in Job, verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. What should I do next? Be patient, okay? Go read your Bible. Go get familiar with Isaiah. See what he went through. See how the Lord sustained him. Go read Daniel. See what Daniel went through. See how the Lord sustained him. Go read Jeremiah and see what the Lord did. See how the Lord sustained him. That you are not unique. You're not going through something new. God's people have always gone through suffering, hardship, and heartache on this fallen earth. And the Lord sustains us all. Whatever context you're in, whatever mistreatment you are going through, whatever heartache, James says, look at the prophets. They endured hardships, jail time, even death. Because in suffering, we are prone to kind of pull away, kind of turn down our gospel volume and, and kind of get mousy. But James says, no, rather crank it up. Don't lose your prophetic edge even as you go through suffering. Don't back down from saying what you should in your evangelism and what you would say to a friend. Be patient, but still speak that prophetic truth. Stay steadfast. Like who? Like Job. Verse 11. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. 
So here you have patient, then you've got the prophets, now you've got steadfast. They've established their hearts. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord in Job. You saw what the Lord did with Job. What did we see about the Lord with Job? What was his purpose? What did the Lord reveal to us? End of verse 11. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Stay steadfast like Job. He wasn't perfect. And, and he, said all, he said a few dumb things. But don't we all? But all in all, he stayed the course. And he didn't curse God like his wife told him to. His heart was established in who God is. Who is God? James tells us. He's compassionate and merciful. Because in suffering, it's very easy to think, why would God do this? I thought you loved me, God. Job could have said all of those things, but he didn't. Because he knew God is compassionate and merciful. We don't have all the information, but the information we do have is enough. He is compassionate and merciful. Listen, beloved, there is not a saint in heaven right now who looks back on their life and is thinking, God was unfair to me. There is no Christian in heaven right now thinking, God was very cruel to me. So don't think that now. Trust him now. Wait on him now. And be careful with what you say. Look at verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now, this is a direct echo from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. They're not prohibiting signing a document or saying, yeah, I promise I'll do that. Or, this is not what they're talking about. Swearing on the Bible in court or anything like that. This is about your word being your word. Because when suffering happens, instead of being patient, we might compromise. And we might try to cut corners and, and have loopholes just to get what we want. Back then, when James's audience, people would get desperate and they try to swindle money from people and they'd make a promise. They'd say, I, I swear by heaven, I'll pay it back. I swear by the earth we live on, I will take care of it. I'll do what we're agreeing to do. And then they couldn't pay it back. They couldn't do it. They knew all along they couldn't do it. But they would try to ease their conscience by saying, well, I didn't swear on God. I didn't swear on the temple. I didn't swear on my mother's grave. I just sweared on the earth. It's okay. This kind of reminds me of when people say things like, to tell you the truth, whenever people tell me that, I'm like, have you not been telling the truth the other times we've been talking? <laughs> Honestly, well, have you been dishonest the rest of the conversation? This is about no matter what we say and when we say it, that our word is just as good as any oath. It is a yes and it is a yes. It's a no and it's a no. James's point is when suffering gets hard, don't compromise your verbal integrity. I think there's another application to this little section. There's another way this verse, these verses fit into the framework of suffering. Imagine you're suffering. Maybe you don't even have to imagine that. And you're laying in bed and you're, you're tired, you're exhausted, and you want to be done with this. And so you try to make a deal with God. God, if you take this away, I'll stop drinking. God, if you take this away, I'll go to church more. God, if you give me this, 
I'll, I'll go on that mission trip. Friends, this is not how Christianity works. God doesn't make side deals with us. We've already, if you're a Christian, you've already said, yes, yes, I will follow you. Yes, I will abandon myself. And yes, I will pick up my cross and follow Christ. And I will count everything as loss for the sake of knowing him. We cannot then come in and go, hey, uh, could you do this for me? Just because I don't like how this is playing out, just because I don't like how this cross feels when I carry it, can I, can I add some new provisions to this new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ? No, we, we don't need any other oaths. We don't need any other swears. We let our yes be yes. We're trusting him. We don't need anything else. Be patient. Trust him. Look for his return. And what else? What's another practical thing we could do to make sure we endure till the end, until Christ comes back? Prayer. Prayer is practical. Look at verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Verse 7 was, be patient. Verse 10 and 11 were about reading your Bible. And now verse 13 is the other spiritual discipline. Pray. Are you cheerful? Are you happy? Sing praises. The word suffering in verse 13, that can really just mean trouble. Is anyone in trouble? Let them pray. So it doesn't have to be the heavy things like cancer and disease. It could just be stress at your job and adjustments and moves and all, any kind of trouble. Pray. This whole final section is about the powerful reality of prayer. And this is striking to me because if we're honest, we a lot of times think prayer, we don't really think it's going to do much. But James says, you want one more practical thing to how to endure till the end? Pray. We say things like, there's nothing left to do but pray. All we can do is pray. As though these are last resorts, Hail Marys, so we can endure till the end. But friends, this is no small thing to pray. It's a very practical thing to know that our Father in heaven hears us. And that through the blood of his son, we can say, help me. And we have his ear. And that by the power of the Holy Spirit, even when we don't know how to pray or what to pray, but if we are just willingly to go to him in faith, the Spirit says, I will pray on your behalf. When you think about Christianity, practical Christianity, is prayer listed there? Has prayer become a reflex to you that, let's pray about this. Let's pray now. Let's, let's pray now. And not on some prayer list that you never look at. Is it practical when your child comes to you for help? Even this morning, my daughter came to me before we left. Papa, can I have some milk? She can't reach the cups. So that's, yeah, I'll help you. You can't do it. I can do it. It's no less practical when we go to our father and say, will you help me? Look at verse 14. I mean, I think he's, look how practical verse 14 is. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Our elders love to do this. We've done it often. We can't do this enough. If you're sick, call us. Reach out to us. Email us. We'll come and pray with you. We'll anoint you with oil. We don't have healing powers, but God does. 
So we go to him. That's why he says, anoint them in the name of the Lord. Because we're inviting God's power. We're inviting you, Lord, in your name. Would you do this? Recognizing the healing comes from him, not the elders, not our prayers, not the Kroger brand olive oil, but him. Nothing special in the oil. So why oil? Is it essential oils? Is this what James is talking about? No, he's not talking about these things. Anointing someone with oil, beginning in the Old Testament to today, it's a way of showing by faith that you're kind of putting a highlighter on this person and saying, Lord, we're looking at them. We are marking them out in a special way. We're putting our focus on them, and we're inviting you if you would put your focus on them. It's a way of coming together in faith saying, Lord, we're highlighting them. Would you look to them? Would you heal them? Would you put your heavenly gaze and your power on them now and heal them? God, look at them. We're looking at them. Would you do the same? And we pray in faith, knowing, God, you can heal them. Would you do it now? Not in doubt, not in double-mindedness, as James says, but in faith that God is at work. And I think there's another kind of faith mechanism built in here. You read this and you're like, "Eh, that's like ancient, weird. I don't do that. If you think that, God has already challenged you in going, if you're not willing to have oil put on your head, you really, you probably don't even think I could actually heal you. If you're not willing to obey this verse, it says be anointed with oil. You really don't think I could heal you. Pray in faith. Just like Elijah. Look at verse 17. It talks about Elijah. What does he say about him? He was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Elijah. We can think a lot of things about Elijah, but we usually don't think this. That he was a man with a nature just like ours. Nothing special about him. Elijah was a normal, ordinary human being just like you and me. No special nature. Just a follower of God just like us. And what did he do? He prayed fervently. He prayed fervently. He didn't pray casually. I think one of the greatest hindrances in our own lives is that we pray too casually. We pray flippantly. We we rely a lot on behind-the-wheel prayers in the car, which are good. Redeem that time. But there's got to be more. I don't think you can have too many closed eyes, fervent prayers while you're driving or on your knees, hands up, eyes open, fervent prayers. Face down in the carpet, fervent prayers for your children, for healing. Do you pray too casually? I know I do at times. But fervent, earnest prayer is what's being modeled for us here. And I think fervent prayer shows, it kind of really correlates with, I really do believe God can answer, and that's why I'm so energetic in these prayers. Casual prayer, that really just correlates with, yeah, God may do it, he may not, it's up to him, whatever. Let's resolve no more casual prayers, but earnest, fervent prayers, because I know God can answer. And our earnestness, it doesn't, that does not hinge on whether or not God will answer or God will heal. But rather, we're earnest because I know God can heal. We do it in faith. It may not be in the time frame we ask, but he will heal. 
That's why he says, wait for the coming of the Lord. Because in the return of the Lord, you will be healed. Did you see the connection with confession? Look at verse 16. The end of 15, he says, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, since you will be forgiven, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. Why this talk about confession and sin in the middle of praying for sickness and healing? I think it's also why the elders are invited, because maybe some heavy pastoral counseling will be needed. Sickness isn't always because of sin, but it can be. We see this in the Bible. There's a man born blind, and one of the disciples asked Jesus, who sinned that he was born blind, him or his parents? Jesus says, well, not in this case. There's another reason why he was born blind. So they had some understanding that this happens. And then in 1 Corinthians, Paul tells the Corinthian church, some of you have gotten sick and some of you have even died because you are sinning at the Lord's Supper. So this happens. And James is showing us this happens. And in Psalm 32, David feels horrible. He feels like his bones are being crushed. And then he says, and I confessed my sin and was healed. This is why James says, confess your sins to each other. If you want to endure till the end, Confess your sins to one another. So who can you confess to? Who do you have in your life? Where you, this, is, this is not just to priests. This is not to popes. This is not just to pastors. This is one of the one another's in the Bible. Love one another. Serve one another. Confess your sins to one another. Does anything need to be confessed to a brother or sister in Christ? Maybe you need to confess for the first time. That you, knowing that you will be forgiven. He promises you will be forgiven. So maybe you need to confess for the first time that I need to be forgiven from my sins. I need to believe that Jesus died in my place and rose again. And then I can be forgiven. Maybe you need to confess that for the first time. And if you believe that, beloved, endure to the end. Be patient. Stay in prayer and lean on the protection in the community. Look at what he says. As he talks about confession, to one another. And look what he says in 19. His last word, his last instruction to the church. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth. So this person wasn't patient. They didn't establish their hearts. They didn't confess their sins. They didn't stay in prayer. They wandered from the truth. I'm sure we all can name people who have wandered from the truth. What should we try to do? Try to bring them back and someone brings him back. That means you went after them. You called them to repentance. You lovingly and graciously said, don't do this. If you do this, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. Will cover a multitude of sins. You know why we confess our sins? It's to put a spotlight on them and invite our brothers and sisters in Christ. Say, would you help me with this? It's to walk in the light with one another and say, help me. It's a non-judgmental, loving, and kind bearing of our burdens. Confession is not a, all right, everybody, judge me. Confession is, I've been judged in Christ. I know I'm righteous in Christ, but I want to live out that righteous life in Christ. Would you help me? Would you help me bear this burden? Would you help me kill this sin? That's what confession and community does. And when someone confesses to you, we cannot be the people who go, yikes. 
I go, why would you do that? You did that? Why are you so dumb? No, that's not, that's not the Christian community. The Christian community says, I'll help you. Let's go together to the throne of grace. Let's go to Jesus together. And notice he says, confess your sins. Look at 16 again. Confess your sins to one another and fix each other. No, that's not what it says. You're not going to find that verse in the Bible. We can't fix each other. All we can do is encourage one another. All we can do is pray for one another. All we can do is bear one another's burdens and take one another to the throne of grace. This is why we need both. Because it's, it's easy for us, especially in the Bible Belt. When someone confesses, we go, okay, I want you to read this book. Let's start meeting. Uh, those things may happen. The first response should be, let's pray together. Let's go to the Lord of glory. Let's go to our Savior together and invite his help now. We are not each other's Mr. Fix-It. There is only one Savior. There is only one Redeemer. There is only one Healer. There is only one Shepherd. Confess your sins. If you don't confess, you won't endure till the end. You'll wander. If you're impatient, you'll wander from the truth. If you don't pray and seek God's help, you'll wander from the truth and you'll wander from the community. If you don't confess, you'll wander. In the community, we're to help each other endure till the end, to be patient together, to pray together, to confess together, and to lock arms together till the return of Christ, because we are one in Christ. Sometimes we just need to remind each other. When you try to pull someone back who's wandered from the truth, we remind them of the truth. Jesus was real to you at one point. You really believed and you, you, you felt and you sang and you prayed that Jesus died for your sins and rose again from the dead. What happened? Confess your sins. I will welcome you back, just like the prodigal son's father. He, he won't turn you away. Yeah, Y2K didn't happen. But we can't act like suffering isn't happening around us. It won't happen to us. People need us to pray for them. We need people to pray for us. We need to be patient together. Friends need our ears and our hearts when they confess. And even at catastrophic times, when fellow brothers and sisters are wandering from the truth, we must go after them and try to bring them back, save their souls from death. I don't know what could be more practical than that. Let's pray together.